Turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. And before we jump in, we, we sent this out via email, but again, this Saturday coming up, April 29th, 3 o'clock, celebration of life service for Miss Peggy Fortenberry, who passed away last Saturday. So uh, everyone is invited to come and celebrate her life and to hug Herb's neck and to be with him. And he would love for you all to be here, and he's going to be feeding us an early dinner as well. So please come if you can. Revelation chapter 17, if you're new to Redeemer, we're working our way through this book as best we can. One of my profs at Dallas Theological Seminary was Bust Fanning, and he has written a wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation. And when it comes to this passage, he said this, this passage may be awkward to preach to a typical Sunday congregation. And I thought, well, shoot. But then I remembered, you're not a typical Sunday congregation, right? Y'all are special. Y'all are wonderful. Then I thought, but I'm not so sure about me. I am tempted by the world. I think all of us are. J.C. Ryle, in his classic book called Holiness, has a chapter called The Fight, The Fight for Holiness, and he mentions those three classic obstacles that every believer must overcome in the fight for holiness. One of them, of course, is our flesh. Another is our great enemy, Satan. The third is the world. Ryle says, we must fight the world. The subtle influence of that mighty enemy must be daily resisted, and without a daily battle can never be overcome. The love of the world's good things, the fear of the world's laughter or blame, the secret desire to keep up and keep in with the world, the secret wish to do as others in the world do, and not to run into extremes. All these are spiritual foes which beset the Christian continually on his way to heaven and must be conquered. Almost every one of the New Testament writers takes note of the world. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James, in James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John, the apostle John who wrote Revelation, said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In Mark, in chapter 4, Mark 4, he records the words of Jesus. Others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world 
the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Ligonier Ministries speaks of the world as the ways of culture and society that oppose the Lord. There are ungodly trends in the world, materialism, naturalism, desire for instant gratification, and more. These once ruled all of our passions but are now defeated in Christ. No longer our ruler, the world still appeals to our remaining sin so that we must maintain our guard lest we fall back into bondage. I think in Revelation chapter 17, John has in mind the world when he writes about the great harlot riding upon the beast. I think John wants us to see the ugliness of the world and the destiny of the world that you and I might not live for it, but rather for Christ. It seems that we are in the final section of the book now. Chapters 1 to 3, if you can remember that far back, was Jesus and the letters. Chapter 1 was a vision of the exalted Christ, and chapters 2 and 3 were the letters that he was writing to the seven churches in John's day. Chapter 4 through 16, the throne and the judgments. You'll remember chapters 4 and 5, we got a vision, a peek into the very throne room of God where the Father and the Son reign. And then from the throne of God came forth the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, which we wrapped up last week. And now in chapters 17 through 22, we come to the final section of the book, which one has called the harlot, the king, and the bride. And this section focuses in, if you will, on two women. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and we just saw that in chapter 16, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come up here, or come here, I'm sorry, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Keep your finger there and look at chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. So in this final section, we can see what he's doing, at least we think we can. On the one hand, here is the great harlot, the prostitute, 
and on the other, here is the bride of Christ. Today and next week, we look at the harlot. Now, I think along with others that she, this prostitute, represents human society opposed to God. One said, the dominant state-sponsored economic religious system throughout the ages. It was alive and well in John's day. It's alive and well in our day. And it will be alive and well intensified and severe in the final days. Sometimes we hear a definition of the world as that system headed by Satan that leaves God out. It's the world's idolatrous, immoral, economic, and cultural system which was embodied here in Rome is, I believe, embodied in the economic, political, cultural systems of our day and certainly will be in the days to come. In verses 1 to 6, I think maybe what John wants us to see is that the world promises much but delivers little. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, again, he's about to identify who this harlot is, at least with, with some bit of clarity. In verse 5, Babylon, this is her name, Babylon the Great. Back in chapter 14, we were led to anticipate Babylon's fall. Last week in chapter 16, if you see chapter 16, verse 19, the great city, and I believe that's Babylon, was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. What was anticipated in chapter 14 that the, the, the economic, political, cultural, societal institutions that so influence the world and leave God out are one day going to be judged by God. Last week we saw at the second coming of Jesus, he's going to destroy it all and establish his kingdom. And I think now in chapter 17 and 18, John says, let me show you a little bit clearer what that's going to be like. So come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the many waters. If you look at verse 15, he interprets that. This angel said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So I think we might say that she, the harlot, Babylon, the world, has influenced over the whole world. She sits upon the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This danger, this world system that leaves God out and tempts us and teases us and allures us, seeking not to give our devotion to Christ, but to give our devotion to her, to the world, 
It's not just here in Katy. It's the world over. And she has influenced many, has she not? Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Whether it's the great elites of the world, or just, if you will, the regular folk of the world, she has led them into acts of immorality. Probably does not have the idea of literal sexual immorality, but carries the spiritual idea found all throughout the Old Testament that whenever God's people would forsake their God to give their devotion to someone or something else, it's immorality. How many kings and rulers and influential people of the world have been in love with the world rather than Christ? The riches and the popularity, the power, the applause, the adulation, they have followed her rather than followed Jesus. And those who dwell on the earth, that, that little phrase is used throughout Revelation, it, it, it describes non-Christians they too have been made drunk with the wine of her immorality. They have followed the world. They ought to be devoted to God and his Christ, in love with him, giving their allegiance to him, devoted to him, but rather they have given themselves to the world. And it seems, I think, verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The beast was full of blasphemous names, having said seven heads and ten horns. This beast, I think, represents world governments, and in particular, leaders of those world governments, and in particular, it seems, in the age to come, or not the age to come, in the end times, that lawless one, the Antichrist, who's going to come into power. And so, the world carries out her influence, you might say, through human Agents. We've talked about the government and the economic and the religious institutions. All of those things are led by people. And she rides upon this beast. She, as one says, it's the incarnation of evil in the world. And there have been many throughout history when Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 was talking about the lawless one who is to come, he said the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. When John in 1 John chapter 2 was talking about the Antichrist, he said there are many Antichrists in the world. So even as he anticipated the coming of the final Antichrist, he noted that there were already many throughout history, as Paul was anticipating the coming of the great lawless one, the Antichrist, he said that that 
spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. The ethos of the world working through human governments and institutions and churches and the like to lead people away from allegiance to Jesus. And she makes herself quite attractive and alluring. Verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. She's beautiful. She's attractive. One says, she looks good. She seems fun. She seems powerful. And she's holding in her hand a gold cup, but look what it's full of. Abominations and unclean things of her immorality. And John identifies her, or at least in this vision, on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. If you remember in the Old Testament, Babel first comes up in Genesis chapter 11. It was a group of humanity that came together and sought to build a tower to their own glory apart from the glory of God. That was at Babel. We're going to do things our way. We're going to do it for our name and for our glory rather than to submit ourselves to the glory of God. And then later on, of course, there was Babylon, that great power to the east of Israel that was godless and tyrannical and came in and opposed God's people, defeated God's people, destroyed the temple, and took them into exile. Babylon is used, I think, in, in Revelation by John as symbolic of any and all of those governmental powers, institutions, systems, that are godless, that do not submit themselves to the lordship of Christ, but rather seek their own glory and their own fame, and they become so promising and beautiful and alluring and tempting that they can lead God's people astray. And she hates God's people. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. In John's day, they probably would have read this and said, this is wrong. This is the Roman Empire in which we live. That is setting itself up as God and encouraging us to worship the emperor and to compromise our Christian faithfulness if we want to be in with the world. They would have thought probably that this is Rome and Rome would marginalize and scorn, ultimately when it got worse, imprison and even kill Christians. 
And John says, when I saw all of this, I wondered greatly. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now briefly, she seems to promise life but delivers death. She seemingly enticed so many kings of the earth and those who dwell upon the earth. She's so pretty and she promises so much. We'll see in chapter 18 the the commercial activity bound up with Babylon. The gold and the precious stones and the pearls. But what is associated with her in all of her promise is immorality. Immorality. Again, that's probably spiritual immorality. It's, it's wooing one away from devotion to God, to devotion to the world. Immorality, immorality, abominations, unclean things. She's Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. Seemingly, the idea is that those who, who devote themselves to her, it, she produces things. She produces people who do not subject themselves to the lordship of Christ and live for him but rather turn away from him as well. Just as she is a harlot and has turned away, so too she becomes the mother of harlots and of abominations on the earth. Well, the world is passing away. I think that's what verses 8 and following are getting at. Now, I'm about to read this, and I want you to put yourself in my shoes. The, so here's the explanation. So you're, you're like, great, we're going to get some clarity. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to, to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must re remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful." I told Tara earlier this week, I said, hey, babe, I want you to read Revelation 17 and tell me what you think. And she read it and said, why don't you just preach verse 14? That seems real clear. Amen. Thank you. 
The details of the paragraph are difficult to discern if you don't think so. Um, I don't you know. Jim Hamilton, quote, commentators are at a loss as to who exactly these symbols signify. The details of this passage may be confusing, and the interpretations and identifications may be at many points disputed. And I would say amen to that. Buse Fanning, whom I quoted earlier, speaking about the angel's clarification here, said, quote, unfortunately, the explanation that follows is also puzzling. I was reading this this week, and I thought some of y'all will remember a long time ago, Cool Hand Luke. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Angel says, I'm going to clarify it for you, and then makes it even more puzzling. Tom Schreiner, these three verses are among the most difficult to interpret in the book, and that's saying a lot, is it not? As the mystery of the woman and the beast continues to be disclosed to John. Hence, any interpretation must be adopted only tentatively, Interpreting what John says here is quite complex. I would agree. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. You'll remember we got introduced to the beast back in chapter 11, and then he becomes, it comes into greater detail in chapter 13, and one of the things about him, you remember, was that he apparently died and then came back to life. He got that fatal wound and then came back to life, and, and people marveled at that. They were amazed at that. And I said, you know, I'm not exactly sure what to make of that, but apparently in in, in the last days when Antichrist comes into power, he will certainly be followed with great signs and wonders and miracles. And one of them apparently is that he is going to seemingly die and come back to life. And even the false prophet, we saw that in chapter 13, is, is, is going to use signs and wonders and miracles and and. and and cause people to worship the Antichrist because of this fatal wound that he overcomes. That may be what's, what's going on here. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to come out of the abyss. Now, I'm getting into the weeds here. I think John wrote this in the 90s A.D., and there was a myth in those days regarding Nero. Nero had died in 68 AD. But it, it was called the Nero Redivivus myth. Redivivus, I thought that was some crazy word. It's actually an English word. Probably comes from something crazy. Uh, not, anyway, and it means to come back to life. There was a myth related to Nero that in fact he had not died, he had gone off to Parthia, and he was one day going to return and take power again there in Rome. And some of the commentators at least think that John is playing off of that, 
Not that he affirms that, in fact, Nero wasn't dead, he was in Parthia and was going to come back, but that that was a myth that many were entertaining during the day, and he saw it as typifying, in fact, what is going to come with the coming Antichrist and his being there, dying, and then coming back to life. I'll let you pursue that a little more if you would like. The beast that you saw was and is not is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. You'll see that again at the end of verse 11. He goes to destruction. So whatever we make of this, and we'll come back to it, whatever we make of these details, he's going to destruction. He's going to destruction. Jesus is going to win. Let's keep that in mind. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name was not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Again, we saw that in chapter 13, and we see it here again. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Almost all the commentators agree Rome was identified as the city of seven hills. And so they say this is talking about Rome, that, that this woman is associated, at least in John's day, with Rome, Babylon. Rome, this powerful government, which sought the worship of its people, the devotion of its people, the allegiance of its people, apart from Christ. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. So it's not, not just seven mountains, but also seven kings. Now, as you can imagine, lots of different ideas on who are these seven kings. The two interpretations that seem to rise to the top, and, and I have a hard time wrapping my head around even what, what, what the scholars are, are trying to say. Some think it's looking back to those ancient adversaries of God's people throughout the Old Testament and even up until John's day. And they would count them like this. Egypt, right, who who in Exodus had the people in slavery and made things so difficult and, and, and the like. Assyria, who became the world power and they're the ones that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and took them into exile. Babylon, that defeated the Assyrians and then came and defeated the southern kingdom of Judah and took them into exile. M Media and Persia, those are often put together, but at least in this count, Media Empire, the Persian Empire. And then the Greeks, Alexander the Great. And then Rome, which came to power and was in power during this time. Others say, no, that's, that's probably not what John had in mind. What he what he probably had in mind and what the readers would have had in mind are seven 
Roman emperors since the, the time of the birth of, of the church up until this time that have been opposed and hostile to the people of God. And the count would go like this. There was Caligula and then Claudius and then Nero. Nero died in 68 AD. In, in the year after him, three different guys vied for control, but, but many would say not, not any of them could be considered ruling. And so, at least in this count, they get skipped. Then you get Vespasian, Titus, Those are the ones, as John says, the seven heads are seven mountains, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. Those are the ones who have fallen. One is Domitian. That's, that's who's reigning in Rome when, Paul, when John writes this in the 90s. One is, and the other has not yet come. That would be apparently the coming Antichrist. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. We've seen that phrase before. When, when, when Antichrist comes on the scene, he'll be there and life will be difficult, but it won't be long. The beast which was and is not is himself an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. It's a confusing little phrase. I'll let you track it down. But again, at the end of verse 8, he goes to destruction. At the end of verse 11, he goes to destruction. We briefly read this in 2 Thessalonians 2 when Paul talked about the, the lawless one who's going to come and then Christ is going to come and defeat him. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. This apparently is that when Antichrist comes to power in a future day, these will be, some call them client kings, they'll be allies of him. Some think it will literally be ten Others say it's a symbolic number. It refers to, if you will, all the nations, all the kings of the earth. You remember last week at the Battle of Armageddon, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for war on the great day of God the Almighty. And so these kings, whether it is ten or whether it is the kings, the nations of the earth, they apparently are going to serve this one dominant leader. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are, are the called and chosen and faithful. I quoted Jim Hamilton earlier. 
when he said this, commentators are at a loss as to who exactly these symbols signify. And then he goes on. But everyone agrees on how these symbols function. These symbols represent the kingdom of the world that will be defeated and will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Jim is playing off of Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, when we get to the seventh trumpet, when Jesus Christ returns and it says, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and forever. Can I hear an amen? Amen. He goes on, and I quoted this earlier. The details of this passage may be confusing, and the interpretations and identifications may be at many points disputed. But I think we can be sure of this. The end is coming. It will be very bad for Christians for a little while, but then Jesus will conquer his enemies and deliver his people, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Verse 15, he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, now this is interesting, it, it, it almost describes, or it seemingly describes, a civil war between the beast and these kingdoms that, along with the harlot, had come together against the Lord and against Christ in this war. But also there's this, it's almost as if God turns them upon one another. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. So I, it, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what, what this is going to look like, but I think we're meant to see a contrast. Earlier in the chapter, she's beautiful, but where will she end up? Desolate and naked, burned up with fire. For God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Whew. if indeed we're on the right track. She represents the world system that seeks to woo you and me away from devotion to Jesus. She was alive and well in John's day represented in Rome. She will be alive and well in this future day, and I think, obviously, she's alive and well today. Back to Ryle. 
The subtle influence of that mighty enemy must be daily resisted and without a daily battle can never be overcome. The love of the world's good things, the fear of the world's laughter or blame, the secret desire to keep in with the world, the secret wish to do as others do, as others in the world do, and not to run to extreme. All these are spiritual foes which beset the Christian continually on his way to heaven and must be conquered. Very quickly, this is the air that we breathe. It's the water that we swim in, the influence of the world that is all around us. And you and I need to by the grace of God for the rest of our lives until Jesus takes us home or he returns, we need to fight to not live for this harlot, but for Christ and the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And if I would encourage you as I encourage myself to three things, and I've said them before, here are at least three things that you and I can do that'll help us in this fight, I think. Number one, I've said it before, weekly worship. What we do together on Sunday morning is a means of grace to you and to me to keep us in the faith. It's not meant to be something, yeah, maybe we'll go, maybe we won't. Since Jesus Christ rose from the dead some 2,000 years ago on that first day of the week, Sunday, Christians the world over have been gathering every Sunday since, except for COVID, right? Every Sunday since, every first day of the week, we're getting together we're going to hug each other's necks, and we're going to shake hands, and we're going to slap, and, and some we're going to greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't do that here. You'll get in trouble. But we're going to hug one another and greet one another and love one another, and then we're going to gather as believers have been doing for 2,000 years, and we're going to sing to him and to each other. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, we sing not only to the Lord but to each other great truths to keep us going in the faith. And then we huddle together and we open our Bibles and I do my best, you do your best till we listen. Lord, give us ears to hear that we want to obey. Make that a regular rhythm of your life and here you are, right? It's, it is. But maybe there are some of you where, you know, it's hit or miss. And I would just encourage you, make it a regular rhythm of your life. Because it's not just something we do. It's a means of God's grace to you and me to help us stay faithful to Jesus when the world is wooing us away all the time weekly worship. Second, daily devotion. What a privilege and a delight that you and I have access to God in prayer. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, at, at any moment we can lift our hearts to Him in prayer. And what a privilege and delight that we have the Word of God. And we can read His Word and hear 
from him. And we need to go, but I would just, you know, just as a thought experiment, think about the inputs in your life. All the, the words and the messages that are coming into your life and mine. How much of that is in step with Christ or in step with the world? And having done that, could it not be a, 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 an encouragement to try to balance it out, if you will? with God's word and God's perspective on life. Weekly worship, daily devotion, and then, lack of a better phrase, Christ-affirming community that you get with one another whenever you can, whether it's in a community group or a Bible study or just over a cup of coffee. Believers coming together to help one another, encourage one another, and more. Let's pray. Lord, maybe you want us to see that the world is not beautiful. On the face, it may be alluring, seemingly beautiful but it leads to abominations and immorality and allegiance not only to the world, but to the great enemy who is behind it. Lord, please help us to remember it may promise much, but delivers so very, very little. And it's going to pass away. As John would say elsewhere, the world is passing away. And at the coming of Christ, this great city is going to be splintered and fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She will be no more. And what a day that will be. You destroying evil from the world destroying the things that so tempt us and tease us and test us. What a day that will be. We look forward to it. So please help us now in the fight to resist these temptations and to give our allegiance only to Christ. And as we do, we thank you for him who died in our place and for all of our failures, all of the times we have given ourselves to the world rather than to him. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.